Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time you're listening. Welcome to episode 20. We're in the big old state of Texas this week. And in case you didn't know, this is never to be seen in the podcast, and I am Laura. So this week we are doing it in true Texas fashion, and I'm going to tell you about nine missing people. Don't worry, this episode won't be two hours long though. I am only going to tell you about five different cases. I wanted to try to cover as many people as I could considering the large amount of missing cases in Texas. So to give you more bang for free, I'm going to cover three different multi-person disappearances. So this week we are going to go from 1958 to 2011 and we'll just get into it if you're ready. So here we go with the first case. This is the disappearance of Marisha Faye Campbell and her brother A.J. Campbell Jr. We'll do Marisha first. Uh, she is case number MP4958 in NamUs 2970DFTX in the Doe Network, and her NCMEC number is 1151642. She is a Caucasian female with dark blonde hair and blue eyes. She was born on March 2nd of 1955 and was only three at the time of her disappearance. She would be 65 now. She stood at 2 foot 6 inches and weighed 28 pounds. She was last seen wearing a pink or lawn fabric dress with Peter Pan collar, a gathered skirt and puffed sleeves, uh, pink silk panties, pink nylon stretch socks, white buckled shoes with Paul shoe, Paul's shoes label visible inside and a gold bracelet on her right arm. Her brother, A.J. Campbell Jr., is case number MP4960 in NamUs, case number 4342DMTX in the Doe Network, and his NCMEC number is the same as his sister's. A.J. is a Caucasian male with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was born on September 20th of 1957 and was only 11 months old at the time of his disappearance. He would be 62 now. He was 2 foot 2 and 25 pounds. AJ has a birthmark on his eyelid and a birthmark below his lower lip. His thumbs are also clubbed at the ends. He was last seen wearing a faded yellow cloth diaper with clear plastic liner over it and a light blue and white uh, checked shirt with a blue, uh, dark blue collar. So Marisha and AJ were born to Jewel Bernay Campbell and AJ Campbell Sr. Jewel and AJ Sr. were married for eight years. The relationship was not a good one though and AJ Sr. was reportedly very abusive to Jewel, and she had eventually had enough. She took the children and left AJ Sr. Um, Jewel supported herself and her children by taking a teaching job in Goliad, Texas, where they moved to. AJ Sr. had court-ordered visitation times with the kids on Saturdays. On Saturday, September 6th of 1958, A.J. Sr. arrives at 9 a.m. to pick up the kids. He was supposed to bring them back by 3 p.m. A.J. Jr. and Marisha never returned home that day. One of the last people to see Marisha and A.J. Jr. that day, besides their father, was a guy by the name of William Randall Jr., William Randall Jr. was an acquaintance of A.J. Sr. and he accompanied him to pick up the kids in Goliad that day. They were in William's two-door pink and charcoal gray 1955 Chevrolet two-door. A.J. Sr. was just going to spend his time with the kids riding around with them. William said they picked up the kids and drove away from the house. They drove through a Curro, Texas, and Gonzales, Texas, stopping along the way to pick up two large cans of lard. 
William said that when they were about three miles outside of Goliad, AJ Sr. asked him to stop because he wanted to see a friend. William stopped and got out of the car and AJ Sr. drove away without William, but with both kids in the vehicle. About 30 or 40 minutes later, AJ Sr. returned with the car and picked William up. But now, the kids weren't in the back. AJ Sr. told William that he had gone to visit his brother-in-law, but they ended up fighting. AJ Sr. said he left the kids with another relative after they got into the altercation. William did note that AJ Sr. seemed nervous and agitated and even asked him if he had any blood on him. AJ Sr. warned William to tell no one about the fight. They drove to San Antonio together, and then when they got there, they went their separate ways. But they made plans to meet up at midnight at the bus station so that AJ could return the car to William. Guess what? AJ never showed up. So William takes a bus to Fort Worth, and when he gets there, he reports his car stolen. On September 7th, the day after the kids were last seen, AJ Sr. spoke to a minister in Fort Worth on the phone. While speaking to the minister, AJ Sr. implied that he had killed Marisha and AJ Jr., saying that they were at rest with the world. He also said that he was going to kill himself. So early on September 7th, probably not very long after speaking to the minister, AJ Sr.'s body was found. He was inside Williams' vehicle on a rural, rural road near Austin, Texas. His death was ruled a suicide. He had shot himself in the head with a new 16-gauge shotgun. He did leave a note, though. It was addressed to Jewel, and in the note, A.J. Sr. told her that he had buried both children. He also said that he loved her and that the kid and the kids and that he hoped that Jewel would be happy. The note unfortunately gave no indication of the children's whereabouts whereabouts and despite searching they have still never been found. After this whole incident and after some time passed of course, Jewel did end up remarrying. She took the last name Roberts and ended up having two more children. Unfortunately, in 2013, Jewel died, never knowing where her first two children were. But Jewel's two children from her second marriage took up the crusade for her, for their mother. They are very active in the search for AJ Jr. and Marisha and hope that one day they are found. They do believe that there is a chance that AJ Jr. and Marisha are alive and that AJ Sr either gave or sold them to someone instead of killing them. The case is still open, and Marisha and AJ Jr. have not been located to date, but hopefully the answers that are still sought in this case come soon. So if you have any way of helping answer those questions, please don't hes hesitate to contact the Goliad County Sheriff's Office. Okay. Uh, now that that case has warmed you up, um, grab your snacks and your drink, take a deep breath, and sit down. This is another multiple disappearance, but this time we're talking about three, and it's going to be a long one. This is the case of the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Most of this information is going to come straight from the Wikipedia page. We're going to go in the order of age here, and the oldest of the trio is Mary Rachel Trillica. She is case number MP6744 in NamUs and case number 57DFTX in the DOE Network. Her NCMEC number is 601926. She was born on November 15th of 1957 and was 17 years old at the time of her disappearance. She would be 62 now. She goes by her middle name, Rachel, so that's what we will call her. She is a Caucasian female with green eyes and long brown hair. 
She stood at five foot six and 108 pounds. Rachel has a chipped upper front tooth and a small scar on her chin. She was a married high school student at Southwest High School in Fort Worth, and at the time of her disappearance, um, Rachel had been married to her husband, Tommy Trillica, for about six months. Rachel was wearing her wedding band when she disappeared. Lisa Renee Wilson is case number MP6817 in NamUs and case number 58DFTX in the Doe Network. Her NCMEC number is 601940. She was born on August 29th of 1960 and was 14 years old at the time of her disappearance. She would be 59 now. She too goes by her middle name, which is Renee. She's a fair-skinned Caucasian female, 5 feet, 2 inches in height, and 110 pounds. She has light, wavy brown hair and brown eyes. She has a scar on the inside of one of her thighs, uh, which one, I'm not sure. She was last seen wearing bluish-purple hip-hugger pants, a white pullover sweater with sweet honesty in green letters. Um, some have reported it as a pale yellow t-shirt with green letters. Um, she also had red and white Oxford shoes and a promise ring with a single clear stone. The youngest of the girls is Julie and uh, Moselle. She is case number MP6429 in NamUs and case number 59DFTX in the Doe Network. Her NCMEC number is 815024. She was born on April 5th of 1965 and was nine years old at the time of her disappearance. She would be 55 now. She is a Caucasian female, four foot, three inches in height and 85 pounds. She has shoulder length, sandy blonde hair and blue eyes. She has a small scar under her left eye, a scar in the middle of her forehead and a scar on the back of her calf. She was last seen wearing um, a red shirt with dark, possibly blue jean pants and red tennis shoes. So, just before noon on December 23rd of 1974, Rachel got into her 1972 Oldsmobile 98 to head out for an afternoon of shopping at the Seminary South Shopping Center. Lisa had asked her friend Lisa Renee Wilson to accompany her for some last-minute Christmas shopping, and Renee agreed. Nine-year-old Julianne um, asked to tag along at the last minute because she didn't want to spend the day alone. The older girls told her she needed to get permission to go. Julianne ran inside and called her mother. I'm sorry, I said that Julianne, Julianne is Julianne Mosley, I'm sorry. So anyway, she, Julianne ran inside the house and called her mother Rayanne Mosley. Um, she would, her mother Rayanne <clears throat> would later recall, quote, I was working for an electrical contractor and my husband and I were separated. It was a bitter, bitter time. I remember that Julie called and wanted to go to Seminary South. I said, no, you don't have any money. You just stay home. I knew Renee and her mother, but I really didn't know Rachel. But she kept whining about how she wouldn't have anybody to play with. I finally gave in, but I told her to be home by six. The older girls, specifically Renee, wanted to be back by 4 p.m. because she had a Christmas party she wanted to attend with her new boyfriend who had given her a promise ring that very morning. Um, She wanted to have plenty of time to get ready, Uh, so she wanted to be back by 4. The girls first headed to the Army-Navy store in Fort Worth to pick up some items that Renee had put on layaway. From there, they headed to Seminary South Shopping Center at 4200 South Freeway in South Fort Worth, Texas. Several witnesses reported seeing the girls in the mall that day. When the girls didn't return home, though, the families began became concerned and traveled to the shopping center to search for them. They arrived at the shopping center around 6 p.m. that evening, 
to find the car was parked in the Sears upper level parking lot and it was locked. It appeared the girls had made it back to the car that afternoon because the gifts that they had purchased were inside the car. The family stayed at the mall all night waiting for the girls to return, but of course they didn't. So when the girls didn't return, they contacted the Fort Worth Police Department and the case was quickly handed over to the Youth Division of the Missing Persons Bureau. The girls were presumed to be uh, runaways by the police. As if to prove this point, the next day, Tommy Trillica, uh, Rachel's husband, received a letter in the mailbox at their home that appeared to be written by Rachel. It read, I know I'm going to catch it, but we had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in Sears' upper lot. Love, Rachel. Okay, so let me tell you about this letter. Strangely, the letter was written in ink, but the addressed envelope was written in pencil, and the letter was written on a sheet of paper that was wider than the envelope. It was addressed to Thomas A. Trillica instead of the less formal Tommy, as Rachel called him. Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, was written in the upper left corner of the envelope. It appeared to be initially misspelled as the I in her name was written as a lowercase e, but then it had been gone over again to form the correct I. The postmark did not contain a city, only a blurred zip code that appeared to be 76083. However, the number 3 appeared to be either backwards, um, as though maybe it was applied by a hand-loaded stamp, or a partial 8. It is assumed that the zip code was meant to be either 76038, which comes from Eliasville near um, Throckmorton, Texas, or 76088, which comes from Weatherford, Texas. During the 1970s and 80s, handwriting experts across the nation examined the letter, including the FBI, um, who examined it three times, but each time the results came back inconclusive. Despite receiving the letter, The families did not believe that it was written by Rachel, nor that the girls had run away. Rayanne Mosley, Julianne's mother, stated, I know my daughter, and I know those other girls, and they are not runaways. Judy Wilson, Renee's mother, is noted to have said, I could have told you that night that they didn't run away. Renee wanted to go to that party, and no nine-year-old is going to run off two days before Christmas. Everybody knows that. Frances Langston, Rachel's mother, believed the girls had been abducted, saying, quote, A lot of people may think they left with someone they know, but I'll always think, until the day I die, that the girls were taken. So let me tell you about something some people believe is odd in this case before we get too far in. Let's talk about Rachel's sister, Deborah. Deborah was once engaged to Thomas Trillica before his marriage to Rachel, but she now says the relationship was not serious. Rachel began seeing him afterwards, and the two were married in 1974. Rachel then moved out of the Arnold family home and moved in with Thomas. Deborah had been arguing with her then-boyfriend at the time uh, of Rachel's disappearance, and, I'm sorry, and, um, let me me try that again. Deborah had been arguing with her then-boyfriend at the time, and, and then Rachel, um, at the time of Rachel and the girl's disappearance, and Deborah was temporarily living with Rachel and Thomas in December of 1974. I'm sorry. Whew, I got all confused by myself. Uh, both Deborah and Thomas maintained that their romantic relationship was over by that time and it was not uncomfortable having all three of them living in the same house. 
Rachel asked Deborah to accompany her on that shopping trip the day she disappeared, but Deborah decided to stay in bed instead. Deborah was also in the Trilica home the following day when Thomas recovered the letter. Some members of the Mosley, Wilson, and Arnold families believe that Deborah knows more about the three girls' disappearance than she is willing to admit. They sent her a letter after an interview with Mary Rogers of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram newspaper in Texas in January of 2000. The family's letter pleaded for Deborah to divulge all the details that she may know concerning the girls' whereabouts and to fully cooperate with Fort Worth Police Department and the FBI. Deborah continues to state that she knows nothing more about the case and has nothing to hide. Deborah does admit that her brother, Rusty Arnold, believes she knows uh, more about the case. He also believes that it was Deborah, not Rachel, that wrote that letter to Thomas. But Deborah denies this accusation and said in the in the January 2000 interview that the Star Telegram to the with the Star Telegram that she believes her her sister may have been forced into slavery. Now, I don't know how she drew that conclusion. In any case, these girls' families were not going to give up on finding them, especially because they didn't believe that they had ran away. So they distributed missing persons flyers throughout the state and contacted newspapers across the country. Because of that, eventually tips began to come in and witnesses began to come forward. So let's talk about that. In early 1975, one young man claiming to be an acquaintance of Rachel stepped forward and said that he saw them in the record department of a store inside the mall just before they disappeared. Apparently, he and Rachel saw each other and spoke briefly. The man claimed that another person appeared to be with the girls. During the same time, some women's uh, clothes were found in the Justin, Texas area and were investigated, but it was determined that they had or they did not belong to any of the girls. By the spring of 1975, the families grew frustrated with the police investigation and decided to hire a private detective named John Swain. In August of 1975, Swain discovered that a 28-year-old man was making a string of obscene calls in the area. The man had worked for a store in South Fort Worth where Rachel had applied for a job just before Christmas. It was discovered that he was using his position to obtain information from young women who had either applied for a job at his store or who were listed as references. Six women who had applied at the store had been receiving obscene phone calls. He also once lived in the neighborhood of Rachel's parents but moved away shortly before Rachel got married. In the end, nothing ever came of this suspect. In April of 1975, P.I. Swain went to Port Lavaca with 100 volunteers to search under bridges in the area after receiving a tip that the girls had been killed and taken there. However, no traces of the girls were found. A year later, it was reported that three skeletons were found in a field outside of Alvord, Texas, by an oil, oil drilling crew. P.I. Swain had the bones checked against x-rays and dental records of the girls, but it turned out that the bones belonged to a teenage boy about 15 to 17 years old and two other females who were not identified as being any of the girls. Similar to other cases I've covered, psychics became involved. In March of 1976, a psychic called one of the families and told them that the girls would be found near an oil well. For some reason, I can't tell you why, the, searches, uh, the searchers focused on, a, on the small community of Rising Star outside of Abilene, but nothing was ever found. Sadly, in 1979, John Swain, the PI, died following a drug overdose. His death was subsequently ruled to be suicide. Upon his death, 
he ordered that all of his files on the case be destroyed. And that seems kind of stupid, if you ask me. In the spring of 1981, police investigators were called to a location in Brazoria County after human remains had been found in a swampy area. After a month of investigation, they discovered that the bones did not belong to the three girls. After that, um, time passed with no further leads and the case became cold. But in January of 2001, the case was reopened and assigned to a homicide detective, Tom Bocher. He believes the girls left the mall with someone they trusted. He stated, We can say that they were at one point seen with one individual, but we believe there was more than one involved. Over the years, searchers have continued to comb through Texas brush and have explored hundreds of back roads. The families have walked creek beds and county roads only to come up with nothing. Decades after the girl's disappearance, uh, uh, there have been no reports of new developments in the case. So let me tell you about some other possible witnesses. Around the time of the girl's disappearance, a store clerk came forward and said that a woman told her that she had seen the girls at the mall that day. The woman reported that she saw three girls being forced into a yellow pickup truck near Buddy's grocery store at the mall. The truck was described to have lights on top of it. The witness, however, could never be located by the police and therefore that story was never verified. In 1981, at least six years after the disappearance, a man said he had been in the parking lot that day and had seen a man forcing a girl into a van. The man in the van told him it was a family dispute and to stay out of it. Now, in 1974, the mentality of people was a little different. If you saw something like that back then and were told it was a family dispute and to stay out of it, I think most people just thought, well, it's none of my business, and they literally stayed out of it. Nowadays, I think people know better. And I will say this, if you see something that does not look right and uh, you are too scared to get involved, get as much information as you can, like license plate numbers and description of anybody involved, and call the police to report whatever you saw. They can determine if it's worth being investigated. <clears throat> so, in April of 2001, Bill Hutchins, a former Fort Worth policeman and security guard at the Seminary South Sears outlet, came forward to say that he saw the three girls with a security guard on the night they disappeared. He said he saw the three girls inside a pickup truck with a young male security guard from Seminary South Shopping Center at approximately 11.30 p.m. on the evening of, the di of their disappearance. He said that the girls seemed relaxed and were in the vehicle willingly. He said he contacted the authorities a few days after the girl's disappearance, but that the investigators failed to follow through with the lead until April of 2001. Authorities told reporters that they located the security guard who, who was identified by the witness, but that the man denied the girls were ever in his truck on the evening of December 23, 1974. Detectives went on to state that they are actively looking at five suspects and also utilizing DNA testing in their investigation. Once again, though, the case is cold. There is no new information about the girls' disappearance or their whereabouts. In 2018, it seemed like there might be a lead when two cars were raised from the Benbrook Lake. It was thought that the, car the cars were connected to this case, but it turned out that they weren't. At this point, these three girls have been missing for over 45 years, and while I hope that this case gets solved before it reaches 50, the 50-year 50 mark, I don't think investigators have anything else or anything new to investigate, but hopefully... DNA will push this case forward. If you know anything that may help this case be solved, you can contact the Fort Worth Police Department or the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office and provide any information you may have to them. 
Now that was a long one. Um, but let's talk about our last multi-disappearance and our only adult case this week. This is the disappearance of Michael Keith Bowden and Daryl Glenn Calhoun. This one is going to be pretty short, unfortunately. So let's talk about Daryl first. He is case number MP10875 in NamUs and case number 701 DMTX in the Doe Network. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. He was born on August 28th of 1956 and was 35 at the time of his disappearance. And he would be 63 now. He stood between 5'6 and 5'9 and was between 160 and 170 pounds. He was last seen wearing a blue button shirt and blue jeans or blue denim shorts. He may have a mustache, beard, or goatee. He has a scar on his left knee. He may go by his initials DC, and that's how I'll refer to him from now on. Michael is case number MP10867 in NamUs and case number 702 DMTX in the Doe Network. He, too, is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. He was born on July 4th of 1961 and was 31 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 58 now. He was 5'11 and 165 pounds. He was last seen wearing a pink short-sleeved shirt and blue jeans. He has a scar uh, near his left eye. I think his last name is pronounced uh, Bowden, but it is spelled B-E-A-U-D-O-I-N. Uh, some agencies spell his name B-E-A-U-D-O-N. <laughs> Uh, Michael and DC uh, were co-workers at a mechanic shop in South Montgomery, Texas. They were last seen together in Conroe, Texas at about 7 p.m. on July 14th of 1992. The two men had left the woodlands together in a primer gray 1979 Chevy Suburban with two black doors. The Suburban was pulling a small blue box trailer with a silver top. Michael and DC were headed to Salty's Bar north of Conroe, Texas on FM 1484 to meet with two unidentified men. They were meeting these two men to sell them an apparently large amount of marijuana. It is said that they never arrived at the bar. Two days later, when Michael and DC hadn't returned home, their wives reported them missing. Some accounts say two weeks later, but some accounts say five days later, their vehicle and trailer was discovered. But here's the thing about that. Um, a man was walking his dog in the area of FM 1725 and uh, Dabney Bottom Road in San Jacinto County, Texas. He found a license plate and he called law enforcement to report the recovered license plate. Little did this man know that the license plate was registered to the suburban that the two missing men were last seen in. When the police arrived, they found the truck and trailer chopped into hundreds of pieces. Presumably, um, the suburban and the trailer were cut to pieces with a blowtorch. Now, I couldn't find much information related to any search efforts or flyers, but there are some discussions on WebSleuths and Reddit about this case. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I read about this case on there, but keep in mind these are public discussion boards, so I cannot tell you if this information is true and or accurate, but in this case, I believe it may be. Here, uh, I'm going to refer to a post on Reddit from about uh, 10 months ago in which a user talks about what she heard about the case. In this telling, the user refers to a man they call Jay, who is actually Michael's son, according to this user. The user claims to have spoken to Jay, or Michael's son, and this version of events is what the police have relayed to him. So the story goes that Michael was driving the Suburban and trailer to Salty's Bar alone. 
Michael pulled into Salty's parking lot and two brothers inside the bar allegedly saw him pull in and they stopped playing pool and paid their tab. They get into their vehicle that may or may not have been a firebird and they pull out of the parking lot behind Michael. It is thought that they were going to meet DC at another location where he was waiting for them. Then, about two weeks later, the police find the chopped up suburban and trailer. There were rumors that a few weeks after the disappearance, those two brothers had brand new trucks and trailers. Jay was allegedly told by police in 2010 that the brothers owned some sort of concrete or construction company at the time of Michael and DC's disappearance. That there apparently was also mention of a dragster or funny car that was also at the location where the Suburban and trailer were found. Jay, for some reason, assumes that the dragster belonged to DC. That information should be pretty easy for investigators to confirm or deny though, and I could find no mention of this vehicle in any other place online. The idea was that half of the large amount of weed was in the dragster that DC was allegedly in, and half was in the trailer that Michael was pulling. It is rumored that it was about $2.5 million worth of weed, but that is unconfirmed, and I personally don't see that as being true. That number isn't documented anywhere, but Jay claims that it was what he was told. Jay was also told that there was DEA involvement, and that the DEA was aware that an exchange was going to occur but they didn't know with whom. It is unknown if the DEA was watching Michael and or DC or if they found out about the deal some other way. So that's the story on Reddit, but you're not going to easily find any of that extra information on any uh, kind of news site or missing person site, which is why I can't tell you if it's true or not. Reddit and WebSleuths are the only two places I found mention of this extra information. I do know that Michael and DC have still not been located and police do suspect foul play. It is thought, and maybe rightfully so, that their disappearance is related to the drug transaction. So if you know anything about the disappearance of Daryl Glenn, DC Calhoun, and or Michael Keith, uh, Bowden, you can contact the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office. Now, uh, our final two cases this week are single disappearances, but they are the disappearances of babies. And I'm talking about one year or younger, so if that's not the thing you want to hear about, now might be the time to turn this episode off and come back for the next episode. If you are still here, I'm going to tell you about the disappearance of Deja Marie Weaver next. Deja is case number MP67929 in NamUs, and her NCMEC number is 1124733. She is an African-American female with brown hair and brown eyes. She was born on September 10th of 2009 and was only nine months old at the time of her disappearance. She would be 11 now. She was only 24 inches long and 22 pounds. Deja was reportedly born prematurely and had some medical problems as a result. In the late night hours of June 10, 2009, Tamara Cray contacted Dallas Police Department and reported an intruder had entered her home. Tamara was six months pregnant at the time and said that the man entered her apartment at around 11.40 p.m. and tried to sexually assault her. She said she fought him off, but when he fled, he took her nine-month-old daughter, Deja, with him. At the time, Tamara couldn't provide a description of her assailant. The incident took place at her apartment at the Oak Run apartment complex in the 5800 block of Preston Oak Road in Dallas, Texas. At the time, Tamara, uh, her boyfriend, and Deja's father, Al Al I'm sorry, Alandus Weaver, and Deja were in the process of moving into an another apartment seven miles away in the 18,900 block of March Lane. 
Alandus wasn't home at the time of the assault because he was transporting some of their belongings to the new apartment. When police speak to Deja's parents, they give conflicting and changing stories about their daughter's disappearance. Because of that, an Amber Alert wasn't issued for 12 hours after the kidnapping took place. Tamara soon recanted her story. On June 15th, five days after the reported disappearance, Alandis was arrested and charged with tampering with physical evidence. A few days later, Tamara was also arrested on the same charge. Investigators stated that they had reason to believe Deja had not been kidnapped by a stranger. They instead believed that Deja was murdered by her own father. Here is where the story gets worse. According to court documents, on June 8th, two days before she was reported missing, Tamara left Deja in Alandis's care while she was at work. When Alandis came to pick her up at her job at uh, 9 p.m., Deja wasn't with him. He asked, uh, or she asked where the baby was, and Alandis told her that he had given her a bath and left her at home, alone. When Tamara and Alandis arrived at the new apartment on Marsh Lane, Deja was lying on the floor, naked, and wrapped in a towel. Tamara rushed to the baby, only to discover that her body was cold, she wasn't breathing, and she had no heartbeat. She also had several bruises on her face, back, and abdomen. Tamara, of course, made several attempts to revive her daughter, but they were all unsuccessful. When she asked Alandis what happened and demanded to know, Alandis became loud and violent. When Tamara tried to alert the police, he threatened her and stopped her from making the call. Tamara claimed that she was terrified because she was pregnant, and if he could kill their infant, what could he do to their unborn child? Tamara claimed that she endured abuse throughout the relationship with Alandis, and this is believed because when law enforcement initially encountered the couple after the reported kidnapping, they noted that Alandis spoke to Tamara in a very threatening manner. Alandis told Tamara they should make up a story about Deja being kidnapped. So the following day, after Tamara got off of work, she and Alandis drove to Louisville Lake. There, Alandis threw the infant's body tied to a sandbag off the Interstate 35 bridge. Then, Alandis punched Tamara several times to make it look like a kidnapper had assaulted her. Tamara admitted that the story she initially told law enforcement was a lie. She said she lied because she was scared of Alandis. Alandis, of course, maintained that he was innocent of any involvement in Deja's disappearance and that the baby was still alive. On July 2nd, over a month later, something changed. The change was his whole story. He then claimed that he had accidentally drowned Deja while bathing her in the kitchen sink. He took police to the Interstate 35 bridge to show them the exact spot where he had thrown his daughter's body over the rail. Searches of the area did not locate Deja's body, though. Alandis was charged with capital murder. The capital murder charge was later withdrawn, and he was then charged with felony murder instead. His trial began in the spring of 2010, but would you know it, this saga doesn't end there. In his trial, Alandis once again changed his story. He blamed Tamara for killing Deja. He said Tamara smothered Deja, then threw her body in the creek behind their apartment. It didn't matter what Alandis said, though, because the jury didn't believe it. Alandis was convicted of felony murder and sentenced to life in prison. Police have made several searches of, of Louisville Lake looking for Deja's body, but they never located it, and they don't plan to search any further. The lake is full of debris, and the underwater visibility is very bad, and because of that, they have decided not to search that area any further. Tamara has never been charged in connection to her daughter's disappearance and presumed death. Deja is still considered missing. Her body has never been located. 
I don't know if anyone has a theory that Deja may still be alive, but it is not outside of the realm of possibilities. But I'm pretty sure, or I'm convinced myself, that she is dead. But if you have any idea where Deja Marie Weaver may be, please contact the Dallas Police Department. All right, final case this week. This is case number MP10068 in NamUs, and his NCMEC number is 1165276. This is the disappearance of Joshua Javon Davis Jr. Joshua is an African American male born on August 16th of 2009. He was one at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 10 now. At the time of his disappearance, he was two foot and 30 pound and had black hair and brown eyes. He was last seen wearing a blue and red plaid long sleeve button down shirt over a gray long sleeve rockaware shirt, dark blue rockaware jeans, a beige and white rockaware onesie, black and white socks, a diaper, and no shoes. Joshua was uh, has a quarter-sized dark brown birthmark above his left knee, and Joshua's nickname is Fat Boy. So this case uh, is going to be a little short, but I'm pretty sure you will find some similarities between this case and the last case. Joshua was last seen in the kitchen of his family's mobile home in the 2600 block of Savannah Hills Circle in New Bronzeville, uh, New Braunfels, Texas, between 8 and 8.20 on February 4th of 2011. Joshua lived at that residence with his parents and his older brother. His mother, uh, Sabrina Benitez, was eight months pregnant at the time with her third son. On that night, Joshua's parents were hosting a get-together, and there were nine people in the house, including Joshua. It was some time before nine when he disappeared, and he has yet to be seen again. Um, Joshua was a very mobile toddler, and unfortunately, the front door of the mobile home they were in didn't latch properly. When law enforcement was contacted, they initially theorized that Joshua had wandered off because of his mobility and the unlatched door. They conducted extensive searches of the neighborhood looking for Joshua, but they found no sign of him. They even utilized tracking dogs, but they couldn't pick up on Joshua's scent. On the night Joshua disappeared, temperatures in that area dropped to 19 degrees. So if he had wandered away from the house and he didn't find shelter, he most likely wouldn't have survived the night. After law enforcement couldn't find Joshua in the area, they began to look into other possible causes of his disappearance. When authorities spoke to his parents, they offered up another possible explanation. They said they believed that Joshua had been abducted, and they pointed the finger at a family friend as a possible suspect. The family friend had visited the home on the night of February 4th, and he had left shortly before Joshua was discovered missing. So when authorities spoke to this person, he allegedly gave conflicting stories about that night, and when he was asked to take a polygraph, he refused. Authorities stated that the evidence shows Joshua was, was possibly injured and then removed from the home before he was reported missing. They believe one or more of the adults in the house that night is lying or knows more than they are willing to admit but no one has been named as a suspect. Law enforcement claims that everyone has been cooperative, but they don't believe that the information they are providing is fully truthful. Authorities also claim that there were drugs in the house that night, um, but time was spent disposing of them before the family notified law enforcement that Joshua was missing. Joshua's mother says that isn't true. She did admit that there was marijuana in the house before Joshua went missing, but the delay was only about 10 minutes while they were looking for Joshua outside. They didn't want to contact law enforcement if Joshua was somewhere in the neighborhood and they could locate him themselves. The FBI and the Texas Rangers were also brought into the case, 
but even with the additional assistance, Joshua's fate is still unknown. This case is still being investigated, though, and law enforcement isn't saying much about any suspects or clues. So if you can help in any way with information that may lead to the location of Joshua Javon Davis Jr., please contact the New Braunfels Police Department. Well, well, well. Um, that is it for this episode, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, I know I have been slacking on the scene again segments of the show, but I've been publishing bonus episodes to make up for it. I think, well, I'm going to try to get another bonus episode out for you on Sunday. Uh, Then I'll take a little break on the bonus episodes for a little while. But I do have some bonus episodes I really do want to get out for you. I have, I I personally have to research and record these episodes while I'm still working a full-time job and taking care of all of the other responsibilities in my life. So I really try not to overwhelm myself but I want to get these episodes out to you, uh, so I, so I don't want to promise a time frame for the bonus episodes I have coming up the road, but I can promise I will get them to you. So with all of that being said, let me say some more. Um, if you like this episode or this whole podcast, share it with your friends and enemies alike. If you haven't done so already, like, follow, favorite, rate, and or review on whatever platform you listen on if any of those are an option. If you listen on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give me those five stars and help me climb the charts. It doesn't matter what you say in the review. You can tell the world how fabulous or how shitty your day was in the review and that will be okay by me. If you're not already already tuned into the Facebook page, you can find it at facebook.com backslash ntbsa podcast go hit that like button so that you can see when new episodes are up and what these people look like you can also send me case suggestions there or leave a comment about the cases i cover if you don't do facebook but you have a case suggestion no worries you can email me with that suggestion at never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com in case you didn't know i love hearing from you It really makes my day to know that people listen and are interested in what I have to talk about. I want to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Well, that concludes this regular episode. Episode 20 in Texas, I really did dread you, but you were kind to me and hopefully you'll be kind to the listeners. So, I hope that you come back next week for episode 21 when I tell you more about those never to be seen again.